Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show a writer who got his start in daytime television, earning an Emmy nomination for his work on the long-running show As the World Turns, before moving to primetime, writing for series like Rizzoli and Isles and Law and Order Criminal Intent. He's currently a writer and producer on the ABC drama series Revenge. He's also written, edited, directed, and produced numerous documentaries, commercials, and new media campaigns, and is a graduate and former adjunct professor of USC's prestigious screenwriting program. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Mr. Ted Sullivan. Thanks for coming on the show, Ted. Thanks for having me. Um, First off, we'd like to get to know you a little. When did you decide you wanted to make a career out of screenwriting, and how did you get your start in the business? I first fell in love with movies when I was a kid living in Boston, um, seeing, uh, like most people my age, Star Wars. Uh, and then I moved to Europe and lived in uh, Geneva, Switzerland with my family. And we had a old-fashioned VCR and uh, friends used to send over videotapes of just recording HBO for six hours hmm. uh, at a time, just random movies. And that was uh, an education for my brother and myself. That's where we first saw things like Lawrence of Arabia and uh, Apocalypse Now uh, and all that jazz. Just And sometimes the movie would end halfway through uh, the recording because uh, the recording would end halfway through the the movie because the tape just ended, <laughs> uh, and so we wonder like I wonder how that movie ends. Um, so uh, that really got us basically addicted to the idea of movies and storytelling. And at that time, TV was kind of bland and the 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 stepchild of of movies, so didn't really register all that much in our lives uh, when we came back to America. But movies definitely did, um, and storytelling definitely did. Um, so that was a that was a big deal, and and, and certainly watching um, the movie Brazil, uh, my brother and I saw it three times in one day in Boston, and uh, when we came back to America, and it was one of those things like I, I want to tell stories, uh, and at the same time. Um, comic books also were a huge part of my life. So there were writers like Marv Wolfman hmm. um, and Len Wein and, and, and Gail Simone who really wrote some of my favorite type of serialized storytelling because that's what um, comic books are. Um, and that really got under my skin. And at that point, I said, I really want to learn how to do this, whether it's movies or comic books. And... Uh, I read Skywalking by uh, the biography of Lucas back when I was kind of a, a Lucas junkie. Um, and uh, there's a large part of that is about going to USC. Uh, so I visited USC and uh, said, this looks like a professional school where people take it seriously, applied to the writing program, which takes you know between 20 and 24 kids a year. Um, and I was really, really lucky to get in, I think they chose people simply by taking all of the applications, throwing them off a balcony in whichever 24 applications landed face up is the people that got in. But um, it certainly wasn't based on any merit of my own. Um, but it was a, a good experience. I think the school is better now than it was when I was there um, just because they've got really, really focused um, on 
a much more of a, a, a realistic version of the industry as opposed to when I was there, which was a little bit more, uh, gee, it would be great if it kind of worked like this. Um, and then after that, it was it was really kind of hitting the ground. Uh, and I was very lucky that one of my professors, uh, Nelson Gidding, who uh, wrote the Andromeda Strain movie and uh, I Want to Live, he was nominated for an Oscar for that. He was a professor, and then he asked me to be his TA, and then he and I wrote some uh, – he, he read my, my senior thesis, and he got me my first agent, and we wrote a couple of TV movies together that didn't get made but got sold, and that really helped me – well, more than helped me, it, it, it got me in the industry. Um, and then that led to my agent said, well, it uh, looks like uh, As the World Turns might be interested. Do you want to move to New York? And uh, I said, absolutely. And uh, that in, in itself – was a huge, huge learning experience. People at the time, and sometimes even today, kind of dismiss uh, soap opera, but it's an incredible place to learn how to write. I think by the end of my first year, I had written 75 hours of network television. And wow. uh, it, it's like working, you know, it, for Roger Corman, it's, it's what I call my grindhouse days. Mm -hmm. It forces you to get stuff done, get it on the air, and move on to the next episode. Mm -hmm. Jumping back to film school really quickly, um, what was your experience like at USC? I went to the, I was in the production program, but I know you were in the writing program. What was the program like back then uh, when you were there? Uh, is, is is going to film school something that you would would recommend? Not tremendously. It depends on what you want to go for. Mm -hmm. When I went, it was a uh, it, it was a very earnest program, but not a realistic one. And it was uh, one of those where you'd sit around in these classrooms and these teachers and back then would, most of them, not all of them, but most of them would say, oh, well, you sit in a, in a across from a producer and you guys talk about the story. And, well, it, they didn't, A, teach you how to get an agent. They didn't, B, they didn't teach you, uh, once you had one, like how to go and pitch. They didn't teach you uh how to deal with producers, what was expected from writers, what what, what the real world was like, uh, and I and I don't think it prepared me for that at all, save for a couple of people, um, Nelson Ginning being one of them, and Abe Polanski, who was a member of the Hollywood Ten, who was all I was also a TA for, and he was my directing teacher. Um, those two men were extraordinary uh, mentors and. Uh, had gone through a, a lot of shit in their own lives, mm -hmm. um, World War II and, and the Blacklist era and and the transition from studio into independent film and that type of thing. And they were my only anchors to any type of reality. Um, but the rest of the school at that time was, was very, very flighty and, and unrealistic. It was basically telling you Hollywood was like Narnia and there was going to be this talking lion that kind of brought you in and gave you contracts like the end of the Muppet movie. Like they were going to just say, get them the rich and famous contract. And it wasn't, and obviously it's not like that at all. I think if you're going to go to film school for production on one level, that makes a lot more sense. Um, but on another level, the way with digital technology now and cameras and editing systems, uh, back then, you, you couldn't 
get your hands on the equipment unless you were out of film school. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's all there. And with Blu-rays and bonus materials and everything online, you can just immerse yourself in film history and listen to audio commentaries and see making ofs and deleted scenes and really and earlier cuts of films, which is what film school was all about back then. Mm-hmm. Today, today, like depending on who the professors are and depending on the quality of the other students in the program, that's, that, that's the reason to do it. Um, but otherwise, just go out and make something, I think. Now. Right. Um, although I will say <clears throat> that when I went to go and teach at USC uh, in the early 2000s and John Furia had taken over mm-hmm. uh, the program, uh, it was a very different program than when I was there. Not just from the, uh, the the incredible remodeling and new buildings that they had, but just the John Furia was was a master at figuring out how do we make this a real professional program, and he was really a tremendous, tremendous um, both teacher and leader uh, in the educational system, and and uh, I think kids who go to USC now have a much better and more realistic. Um, view of the world and, and a, a great footing going out into Hollywood, right? Right. Uh, then certainly than we had back in the early '90s, <laughs> right? Um, now talking about your time uh, in daytime TV, you, you had mentioned that it was sort of a, almost a graduate school for you because you got to do so much work in in a short period of time. Uh, as as a learning experience, can you talk a little bit about? what the process was like, uh, you know, the turnaround time on, on writing an hour long episode uh, and how that compares to how you work now on a show like Revenge. Oh, it's, it's, it is night and day, but the skill set that I learned in daytime, uh, I am really, really helps me in prime time. And I think is an incredible tool for um, being fast uh, and thinking on my feet here in, in prime time. Um, in daytime, basically, our our week was basically Monday was an all day meeting with the network and the production company, with the five of us writers or six of us writers uh, who are called breakdown writers. The way the way that I guess I should say the way that uh, soap opera back then really worked was there are script writers, but the script writers are kind of the junior most writers. They take the, the outlines that are written by breakdown writers and, and turn that into dialogue. Hmm. The breakdown writers are um, the next level up and then there's head writer, but the breakdown writers, there's usually about five breakdown writers and maybe one head writer. And there are five episodes you do a week. So everyone gets at least one episode a week. Sometimes you get a double. Um, and um, the way the week worked is you sit around a table. There's five writers. Uh, you, you break up the whiteboard into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then everyone says, what happens this week? Uh, and you try on two days to lay everything out in big kind of arcs and sweeping kind of storylines. Um, and then you go home on Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, and turn in by 4 o'clock on Friday. 
Um, and then you spend the weekend reading the scripts that are based on your outlines to make sure that they are correct. You read everyone else's material because you, you all have to note each other. Mm -hmm. And then you go in on Monday and you have probably a seven or eight hour meeting with the network and studio. Do a quick rewrite based on their changes. And then the next day, go in again and do it all over again. So you probably had about two and a half days to write an episode, wow. which is uh, kind of insane. <laughs> and then you're basically about four to six weeks ahead of when they actually shoot. Mm -hmm. um, and it never stops. I mean, it's basically 50 weeks out of the year. There's no like seasons. It, it's just always on. Wow. Uh, so it was, even when you went on vacation, you'd have to call in on Wednesday for notes, meetings, and that sort of stuff. So you'd be on the beach and then have to run back in to the hotel for a four-hour call. Uh, so, and then on the flight back home, you'd have to be reading, you know, five episodes worth of material plus five scripts worth of material. The scripts are, each outline was 20 pages. The scripts are, you know, 80 to 90 pages. Because of, because of how they lay out, so it was a lot of reading, and this is before reading stuff on laptops. You you took everything in huge bags with you, <laughs> um, so it was hundreds and hundreds of pages of material that never stopped coming. Um, but uh, the difference now is um, we might have a week and a half, two weeks to basically lay out an episode in prime time, mm -hmm. um, and then you might have a week to write the outline. And then you have uh, probably maybe two weeks to write the script. So when I first transitioned into, into nighttime, it was I couldn't believe it. It's like wow, that's an incredible amount of time, and it really gives you a chance to dig in and find the emotion and track things and and push the envelope on where you want to go with characters or or try something out with a scene, realize it doesn't work, and go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge freedom. Uh, but the training that I got in writing quickly and coming up with solutions and also forcing yourself to say, well, we only have six sets. So how do I make a lot of drama happen on six sets? That's it. You, didn't, you couldn't say, hey, all right, now we're going to go out in the streets and shoot this. No. You've got to find six scenes that can take place in the bar and right. move the story forward and find some drama. And it really, for me, helps a lot in um, primetime. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of listeners uh, are baby writers, aspiring writers. So I wanted to ask you, can you talk a little bit about, uh, in terms of staffing season, what a showrunner meeting is like for baby writers coming in? Uh, what are some of the things that you've been asked when going out? Uh, you know, obviously not now, but when you first were getting started in, in, in TV writing. Uh, and what kind of things would you recommend that writers do to prepare for those meetings? Well, first off, it's, it can be a very daunting and frustrating uh, experience mm -hmm. and uh, it was really really emotionally difficult for me and my wife would be the first one to confirm that um, because you put a lot of effort into it and sometimes you've never even heard of the show but then you go in and you try to be like yeah this is my favorite show ever uh, <laughs> and, you, uh, and then you still don't get it and that's very demoralizing mm -hmm. um, but in the end, uh, I think what people are looking for when you go in is, is this person going to be a positive influence in the room? Do they know 
how to behave in a room. Uh, basically, what they're doing is uh, uh, Waylon Green, who is uh, uh, one of my dear friends, uh, he was the first person to hire me in primetime at Law and Order Criminal Intent, and remains to this day someone who um, I respect as both an artist and, and even more as a person. Um, said to me when he hired me, he said, you know, you, you passed the piss test. And I, I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, there's going to be some night when we're here at three in the morning working on this show. And if I look over at you and you're taking a piss next to me and I go, this guy, then you haven't passed the, t- the piss test. Like, you, <laughs> you know, if I look over and I go, well, I'm glad he's here. He's, he's, he's good in the room. He helps out. Um, and I just felt at the end of the day, you were going to be the guy that didn't piss me off. And I'm like, all right, great. And I, that to me was something that uh, really stuck with me. It's like, don't be annoying. Don't be uh, pushy. Don't be looking for credit. Um, just go in, be a good person, be someone who has ideas, knows when to talk, but more importantly, knows when not to talk. Mm-hmm. And so I think in my early meetings uh, with showrunners when I didn't get the job, I was probably a little too eager, a little too vocal, a little too opinionated, tried to sell myself a little too much. And I think that came off as um, not the kind of guy I wanted in the room. Right. And when I, when I calmed down and uh, stopped pushing as much as I did or stopped tap dancing and trying to sell myself and just had a conversation. The meetings were a lot more casual, a lot more fun. Uh, If I made the showrunner laugh a couple of times with a a casual joke or a casual funny comment that was organic to the conversation, uh, that went over really well. And... um, I, for myself, I noticed that was the key because by the time you meet with a showrunner, if you're a baby writer, by the time you meet with a showrunner, your your work at least got you in the door. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry about trying to prove to them that you can work hard or that you can uh, that you're really talented. They read your stuff and you're in there. Um, so just it's really more of a personality test. It's it's. It's making sure that this person who you're going to be serving a long tour of duty with for a season is not going to make you want to throw them out a window. And I didn't know that at the time. And I, and I think I was a little too arrogant. I think I was a little too eager and a little too desperate. This is a weird town, but the more desperate you are for the job and the more you say, I'll, I'll work my ass off for you, the less this town wants you. Mm-hmm. But the moment you start to go like, okay, yeah, no, that's great. I'm happy to meet with you and seem a little, a little just bit more casual. Then suddenly they go like, wow, this person doesn't seem desperate. I, now I want to work with them. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic. Um, like dating. It is. It is. It's very much like dating. In fact, I would say that's an excellent way of thinking about it. Because when you try to say that beg someone for the date or beg someone to have a good time on the date, you don't seem as attractive as when you're just having a good natural time and the conversation flows. And at the end of it, you go like, oh, that was a fun date. Right. Um, and, and 
it, it was frustrating to me because I would leave those meetings and or I would hear from my agent or manager, now you didn't get the job. And I say, I don't understand. Like I can I could kill that job and I I sold myself. Well, they they don't care about that. Right. That that that's exactly what worked against you. Mm-hmm. Um and it goes it's counter to what you think uh will work for you early on in the career. I mean, as for questions, it completely depends on the showrunner. Sometimes they want to hear ideas about the show. Other times they find that uh, presumptuous and they think they're the only ones that know how to lay out the show. So why would you bother even coming in with ideas for the show? Mm-hmm. Um, what, I would, what I always did was watch every single episode of a show if it was on for less than three seasons so that I was completely immersed in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's hard and it's exhausting, especially when you're going out for a bunch of shows. But if if you're trying to get your first job, you got to be willing to do all of that stuff. Right. I would go in with ideas prepared in case they asked me, but I never suggested or offered an idea unless it was suggested or asked of me. Um, I always talked in the mirror while I was getting ready for the interview to just talk about myself so it didn't sound like I was... Uh, thinking of it for the first time, but it didn't sound too rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to hear how it sounded coming out of my voice, not just in my head, but out loud, which is also why even when I write a script now, I always read the scripts, not only out loud, but I do it in the voice or very bad accent of the actor who plays them, just to make sure that it flows properly and sounds right coming out of their mouths. You've got to do the same for yourself. Right. Um, and the only other thing that I would say is create a pitch for yourself, a narrative uh, for your own life that you would for if you were pitching a script. Because they're always going to ask you, well, how did you get here in front of me? Mm-hmm. Who is, well, why are you here? Like, where did you come from? And you should have a concise, entertaining, and clear um, story that brought you to the seat across from the table from the showrunner that you're meeting with. Mm-hmm. That's good advice. Uh, because if you do that, it, it, you just sound a lot more put together. Right. And that's what they like. And then they go like, okay, you can tell the story of your own life. That's, that's step number one. Right. Um, now, I wanted to ask you, you came in on uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent. You came in just as a staff writer based on a writing sample. You weren't a writer's assistant. You weren't a showrunner's assistant. You weren't a writer's PA, anything like that, right? No. Uh, Whalen had read a script of mine that a friend had slipped to him. Mm-hmm. Um, it took him about a year to read it. Wow. Um, and I figured I was, I'm never going to hear from this guy. Um, and I was actually on my honeymoon when I got a call um, and I picked it up. I didn't recognize the number. I now know it was a, uh, a call from Universal Studios because you know, the prefix, mm-hmm. and um, and, they, and they said, "Will you hold for Whalen Green?" I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, and I'm sitting in Hawaii, and he says, "Yeah, I read your script. It's it's pretty good." Which for Whalen is like a huge compliment. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're we, we pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, can you come in and pitch some ideas tomorrow? And I said, "No, I can't, <laughs> but because uh, I'm on a honeymoon, but I can be there in a week." And he said. Yeah, great. Come in. Just have some ideas. And so what I would do is at night when my wife would go to sleep, I would stay up at night and 
and I and I got a whole bunch of DVDs from a blockbuster. That shows you that there were actual blockbusters then. <laughs> and uh, I would I rented a whole bunch of Criminal Intents, and uh, I would watch three or four a night. And then my wife and I, when we would be walking on the beach or something, I'd I'd pitch her different ideas, and she said, "No, yes, no, yes." And then I went in with nine um, ideas, and uh, it was uh, we just had a conversation for about fifteen twenty minutes, um, and he said, "What do you got for me?" And I pitched him the very first idea, and he just said, "Yep, that's great." Let's drop the contract. I couldn't believe it. Like it was just, it just happened like that. Wow. Um, and uh, I walked out the door and I called my wife and I said, I'm going to write law and order. I, I can't, <laughs> I, it just, it, I wasn't used to it happening that quickly. Right. Um, and then with the next day I came into the office and started working. That's um, awesome. And it was great. It was incredibly nerve-wracking, and I had flop sweat every morning and <laughs> would have to go into the bathroom and put cold water on my face or throw up. And and finally, one day, Waylon came in. He said, you're overthinking this. You know, this is criminal intent. Act one, we think it's this guy. Act two, we think it's another guy, but we don't have any evidence. Act three, we collect some evidence, but not enough. Act four, we get them. Have fun within those variables. Make it interesting within that. And that actually immediately put me at ease. And that's one of the things I will always be grateful to him is to, he told me how to work smart. Right. Uh, and uh, not focus on, on, on the wrong things. Uh, and and know what kind of show you're writing. You know, he said, you know, on a certain show you're going to have to really overthink these other things. But on this show, there's parameters. Know those. Don't try to force the show to be something it's not. And uh, that has served me very well, because right. that's the key. You should always figure out what the show is, not what you want the show to be or what you wish the show was, because you're going to lose that battle. Right. <laughs> the show is the ocean. You're the sandcastle. Right, right. It, it will always win. So don't don't try to uh, don't try to fight that tide. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you got Law and Order: Criminal Intent, was it a spec episode of that show or a different show, or was it an original pilot you had written? Because I know that, that it sort of shifted from people liking spec episodes of series to now liking original pilot. Yeah, when when I. Um, when I went out, it was it was the very tail end of I want to see a writing sample of a uh, of an existing show, mm -hmm. uh, and I had done some I, for a while. I left the industry and had done some. I was a research assistant up at uh, SRI in Palo Alto uh, and Stanford, um, doing uh, longitudinal studies on alcohol uh, addiction and drug addiction, and HIV, and Alzheimer's, and wow. on brain structure and function, and using uh, M, uh, imaging. And um, so I decided when I wanted to get back in the industry and needed to do a writing sample um, to do something that I figured would be the hardest show that was out there at the time, which was a house, mm. um, because I had this kind of medical research background. Um, and uh, so I wrote a, a script that served me very well, 
and um, Waylon had read it and thought it was really sharp and and it was a procedural but a a an unusual procedural because it was a, a twisty medical procedural and also Waylon had done ER for years so he kind of liked that stuff mm-hmm. um, and it had a sense of humor and that type of thing so he he liked he responded to that but um, but it, I did not have a showable pilot at the time mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I certainly uh, I, I certainly developed one after Law and Order um, but uh, uh, it, it, I did not have one when I went out at that time. But today, I don't even think people would would ask for a, or even look at an existing uh, at a sample. I, I think it's all yeah. uh, pilots until <laughs> until it's not right. And actually, I had a conversation with uh, another TV writer producer, and they couldn't understand why uh, spec episodes of existing shows aren't still used because at least you can see if they can write in the voices of an established show already, as opposed to coming up with new uh, characters and, and new worlds. If you're hiring a staff writer, shouldn't they be, shouldn't you be sure that they can write in someone else's voice? Somebody yeah, I think, established? I, I think my guess is what happened was people just got tired of reading another right. Mad Men spec and they're like, I don't want to read another Mad Men spec. And that after a while, after like in two or three years, people are going to be like, I don't want to read another high concept original idea which merges these two genres. Just give me a whatever is the hit show at the time. Right. You know? um, I, I I think people were all writing Sons of Anarchy and Mad Men and Breaking Bad, and people were like, I can't read another one of those. Stop it. <laughs> right. Um, and Ben, I'm telling you, it'll go the other way in a couple of years and it's just constantly cyclical and, and, and it will never change. Right. Um, when you got on Rizzolian Isles, did you have an original pilot that you used to get that or was it still, was it based on your, uh, relationships or, you know, your work on Law and Order or. I, I did have an original pilot. I, I, I don't know how I got the job at Rizzolian Isles. That was... <laughs> <laughs> strange experience I, I I don't know it was um, but yes I did have uh, uh, an original uh, pilot um, and I had an original pilot when I got hired at Revenge mm-hmm. um, so yes the, the, I, I'm, the long and the short of it is yes I did have a, an original pilot no they didn't want to look at a spec by that point mm-hmm. now can you talk a little bit about going back to the writer's room can you talk a little bit about the hierarchy and chemistry in the writer's room and I know every room is different but what makes a great writer's room work uh, if everyone has respect for one another is is uh, probably one of the top uh, positives of a, of a really good writer's room if if there aren't any snakes or landmines in the room if if people recognize that um, Every idea has merit, and um, which means both listening to ideas and uh, and realistically um, contemplating them, uh, considering them. Um, some people like to just talk to, to talk, and that can drive you crazy. Um, and some people are. Uh, overly defensive or overly aggressive, and then it doesn't create a sense of um, safety within the room. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to um, 
put ideas out there. Not every idea is going to be good, but um, if you're self-editing before you even open your mouth on, is this a good idea, is it not, you're probably not going to be getting the best material out of everyone. So you got to feel safe and comfortable in the room. That comes from not being mean to each other, not stealing ideas from each other, and from not belittling people uh, or ignoring people. Um, I think a writer's room uh, has to have a good writer's room has has to have direction. The, the showrunner has to have a point of view, and like a director on a set has to be saying, "This is the direction and tone of the show or the movie. Uh, this is where we're going." That's why they're called the director on a movie. It's like I'm leading us this way, um, and a showrunner uh, has to have uh, a sense of, "Yes, this is this." that is the tone I want, or no, that is not the tone I want. Um, and uh, so I think a clear sense of, uh, of what the show is, the identity of the show, is very important, having a good writer's room. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having a diverse writer's room, both uh, in um, the kind of uh, sex, racial, sexual orientation of, of people, but also in background on what have you done in your life? Where have you worked? Where did you grow up? Uh, who were your parents? Uh, what, what life experience have you had? Um, I think all of that uh, helps color a room and keeps it from being stale and repetitive. Uh, it it's really important to have a group of people that you can look around and say, not everyone's like me in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really, really good thing. It's, it's, it's like biology. You know, you, you want a diverse breeding ground, breeding pool, uh, gene pool. So uh, right. it's, it's uh, and, and, and ideas need a diverse gene pool as well. Uh, that means not to have just a whole bunch of the same person in the room. Uh, on Revenge, we have a very eclectic group of people um, uh, from race, sexual orientation. Um, I think we're pretty much evenly split between men and women, and certainly of social economic background and life experience. That stuff is really, really important. And hopefully they've done, and in our case it's true, hopefully they've done things that are not just being a writer, that you didn't go to film school and then just start writing right. or, or, or producing. Um, I've had a million different jobs beyond doing the, the medical stuff, uh, whether it was being catering or driving a truck. Um, all that stuff opened up my life experience um, and really helps color my writing and helps color um, the types of stories that I pitch um, and how I can um, write a character. Um, and everyone in the room feels the same way. We have people that used to be lawyers. We, um, we have people that are moms. We have people uh, that have traveled the world and, you know, backpack uh, that have been teachers. That's really, really important. Uh, so it keeps you from just regurgitating what has come before on the screen. Right. Now, you're 
currently prepping to shoot the latest episode of Revenge you wrote. How involved will you be in the shooting process, uh, and what does that all entail? Well, I I feel very lucky on Revenge because this is the first show that I've been a part of, which um, Sunil, who is our showrunner, really encourages the writer-producer of the episode to take ownership of the episode. Um, so we're very, very involved from the first pre-concept meeting to um, all the production meetings and wardrobe and props to casting of um, guest stars, co-stars, even extras. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really great, great um, place to be a producer uh, and be very, very involved. Um, we are very lucky because we attract some really awesome directors Mm-hmm. Um, and who come to the uh, to this to our show with uh, great credits, strong point of views, and tremendous talent and intelligence. So uh, that tends to be a very collaborative experience. Um, you you have to know when to kind of let them do their thing, and when you can kind of come in with your ideas. Uh, your job as a producer is to make sure that the show that was approved by the network is um, captured on camera. But a lot of times, uh, everyone brings something to the table that makes it infinitely better than you had originally imagined. So that's a very exciting experience. Um, we have incredible post here, uh, headed by Ted Babcock, uh, great editors. And, uh, you know, basically with that, you just kind of watch some cuts and give your notes um, and then do spotting sessions and and mixing sessions and work with Eisler, our amazing composer, um, and do a spotting session with him. And you can even go to Capitol Records Studio and watch him lead the orchestra. I mean, we're one of the few shows that have a full, basically a full orchestra that does uh, original music for each episode, wow. uh, which for a music a soundtrack nerd like myself who grew <laughs> up on, on uh, especially John Williams, but um, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty damn exciting uh, to watch that. Um, but we're 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 very very involved, um, and uh, we're lucky that we get to take pride and ownership in our episode, and I and I think. Each department does that. I think each department is encouraged to do that. Jill, our um, wardrobe genius, uh, takes a lot of pride and a lot of ownership over ensuring that we have a certain look to our show uh, for the wardrobe. And and, uh, our DPs, John Smith and Cynthia Pushnik, are are like film, they're film DPs. Our show is very cinematic and lush in how it looks and feels. So uh, they take great ownership in what they do. So I think every department really does that. That's, that's amazing. It is. We, we have an incredibly unique family experience. And part of that is that we're in the fourth season. Mm-hmm. But, um, and a lot of us have been here for a huge stretch of the run, if not from the very beginning. I mean, Joe Fazio, who is one of our, probably just, he, he's Mr. Revenge. He's an incredible writer and producer, but he's, been there since before the the pilot. He um, and uh, worked with Mike Kelly in developing 
the pilot and, and, and he wrote the second episode and uh, he's been here for every single episode. And there's been other people that have basically been there for the, the whole ride as well. Um, and so you just, you, everyone takes ownership, which is why I think the show feels uh, as, as rich and like I said, cinematic as it does. It's, it's not just the same kind of flat TV that is boring. It's, 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 uh, it's, there's something special about it, and I think people feel that. And you certainly feel it on the set. And, and you certainly want the show, to uh, your episode, to, to live up to that. Right. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. I noticed you wrote the comic book adaptation of Revenge for Marvel, didn't you? Revenge, the secret origin of Emily Thorne, which uh, I think comes out next month. It comes out in September, right? September 3rd. Yeah. Uh, it, it is uh, for uh, a kid that would save up his um, lawn mowing and uh, walk shoveling uh, uh, money every week to take the train into Boston to uh, go to Superhero Universe and come home with bags filled with comic books and read them until the next weekend when I would go in to get another, uh, to refill my supply. Being a part of the comic book is is the single most exciting um, thing in my professional career so far. Um, I grew up wanting to write comic books and uh, being asked by Sunil to um, be a part of it and having it be with Marvel, which is a dream come true, and to work with Emily Shaw, our incredible editor, and Erica Schultz and, and the incredible artists we had um, uh, on the project, it, it's, it's beyond a dream. And I think it's going to be a very, very... A satisfying uh, read for viewers of the show, and I think it will be equally satisfying and exciting for people who have never watched the show. So I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited. Um, now, what was the inspiration behind making Revenge into a comic book theory? I know Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which continued on, I think, after the show was canceled, it continued on. Um, Sure. Yeah. No, they did. They did uh, season seven, right. uh, and and uh, Smallville has done the same thing with uh, season eleven of Smallville, which is being written by the great Brian Q. Miller um, right. as an online uh, comic. Really great, actually, great book. Um, and I think Jericho ABC, did it too, didn't they? Jericho did. Yeah. yeah. And um, ABC has had some really great success with um, Castle. Um, actually oh. starting as a graphic novel, and then it was so successful that it became a monthly. Um, and because Marvel is part of the ABC Disney family, uh, they've been looking for projects to uh, move into other formats, uh, whether it's web formats or you know or comic books in this form. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the show. On the surface, some people said, well, how, how could that be a comic book? But to me, it always was a comic book. Mm. It's a, I feel the show is a live-action comic book. I think the show is uh, exactly the type of book that uh, I read when I was uh, uh, going to Superhero Universe in Boston. It, it's Emily Thorne is the secret identity of Amanda Clark. Right. Uh, she is a, a rich socialite 
by day and uh, an avenger by night. And uh, she takes down people who are beyond the reach of the law. And she has special training as a ninja that uh, she got from her sensei. Um, it's all those different components. She has a, she has a secret origin, a, a, a tragic background, much like a, uh, an Electra from Electra Assassin or Daredevil. Uh, it's 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 ripe for comic book, and and there's romance and there's action. Uh, anyone who watches the show knows that uh, we always have some great action set pieces and fights, and um, it's just it was tailor made for it. And there were a lot of um, there was a lot of interest within ABC and Marvel to try to make that happen. Um, and I was so thrilled to kind of sit down and brainstorm. Um, to come up with an idea, I brought in uh, Wilson Pollock, who is a uh, writer's assistant here, and Jesse Lasky, who is our script supervisor, and the three of us kind of kicked around ideas and then came. I, I had some questions that I'd always wondered what the answers were, like why doesn't Emily kill, which is a trope of superheroes, or mm-hmm. um, how, why did she decide to change her uh, name and create a, a, an alternate identity? This story answers all those questions, which is why it fits so neatly into the show. Uh, and I think will be very, very satisfying to, to longtime viewers of the show and, and fans of Emily Thorne. That's great. What, what was the process like? Because uh, uh, we've had a lot of, of comic book writers and creators on the show, and it's a very different sort of process in terms of writing the script, just, just from a, a sort of a technical standpoint. Uh, so what was the process like for you, uh, or had you done comic book sort of scripts before? No, no. It, it, to be honest, the way that it worked um, was I worked on the the outline for the project. Um, mm-hmm. And then they brought in Erica Schultz, who is a uh, very established comic book writer, who then took the outline and then... Uh, wrote a script, and then uh, Emily Shaw, who was the editor, and myself with them would go over the uh, script. Um, and Wilson Pollock also was someone who I made sure like would go through everything, and then we'd all poke at it, make sure that it held water, um, and we'd go through rounds of rewrites. And then once that was done, uh, it went off to the artist. And I think uh, it was a, a really positive uh, draining experience because I think we all wanted it to be the best it could be. And so when someone would raise the bar with an idea, then the next person would say, yeah, yes. And, and then so there was that whole process. And I think Emily Shaw had to be the one at the end to say, I think this is where we need to be and move, move us on to the next, because I think Erica and I could have gone in the, in an endless loop of trying to make the idea better, better and better. Um, but just because we we both love comic books and 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 get really excited to uh, uh, by ideas and story and character, um, right? But it was uh, it, for me the most exciting style of writing that I could possibly imagine. There was no limitations you, at all. Um, we you know I spent mo- uh, a large portion of my life. Uh, my childhood in in Geneva, an import, a significant uh, portion of my life in Geneva, Switzerland, and I uh, I wanted to set it there, 
um, and then bounce around to different locations, Chamonix and places where I kind of uh, learned how to ski and that sort of thing. And we didn't have to worry about that. You could just do it. Um, and uh, you didn't have to worry about how many locations you had or how many extras you had or how many costume changes you had. It, you just did it as much as you want. Uh, and uh, you were only limited by your imagination uh, and your page count. But uh, it, it was very, that, that part was very, very exciting and very satisfying. I can't even tell you how satisfying that was. <laughs> Well, now that you've written a comic book, although I'm sure you spend most of your days uh, working in television, uh, is that something you'd let you consider pursuing in the future, writing more comics? Oh, I, you have no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I absolutely want to do that for the rest of my life, 100%. <laughs> as much as people will let me do it, I, will, I, I want to be a part of it. it is, uh, I don't know why any writer wouldn't want to be a part of it. It's, because you, 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 you also work w with, with amazing artists mm -hmm. um, who bring their own um, flair and ideas and, and artistry to the project. And you just – that's what I love about TV and it's what I love about comic books. It's, it's not just you working in a, in a vacuum. Um, I love going to production meetings and, and, and seeing what props are coming up with or, or, or what – locations have been found and say, oh my God, that's even better. Yes. Or I got a text yesterday from Jennifer, our first AD, who said, do you mind changing this scene from one of our sets to this cool bar we found? Can you make justify that in the script? And I said, 100%. Uh, that's a place we haven't shot at before. It'll give it a great new look. People are just thinking about it. And they, they, they raise the quality of the material above what's on the written page. To me, that's the most exciting part of collaborative art. Right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, with season four of Revenge on the way, is there anything that you can reveal about what's coming up? Perhaps an Emily versus Victoria in a winner-take-all game of Jenga or something? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I can promise you. Um, there will be um, some answers uh, that come very early on that will be very surprising uh, in the David Clark of it all. I know there's a lot of people online uh, who are wondering how could Emily's father be alive and what does that mean? It won't be what people think. There's a lot of stuff online right now that I see that people are guessing. Some people are even upset about assuming certain <laughs> things, but uh, they're not right. Um, and uh, It's going to be really good. We're going into the start shooting the fifth episode next week and I think it's a surprisingly good run of episodes and I don't mean surprising because uh, I thought they were going to be bad it's just we were kind of in a pickle at the end of last season we killed some very important big characters mm -hmm. we turned the show on its head by revealing David Clark as alive and there was a lot of where do we go next? And that was, there was some, we were nervous in the writer's room because we knew that was dangerous stuff to do. Mm -hmm. um, but once we found that vein, <laughs> it started really paying off. Um, like you said, wow, there's some gold there in that hills. And uh, that was kind of uh, exciting. And now it feels like we're really picking up momentum in the way that we're, 
putting out story and, and putting out scripts. And I think he, he, the cast feels it. The, the crew feels it. It just like I was on set yesterday and everyone was in this kind of energized mood. Like, yeah, all right. That is kind of cool. It's like, yeah, this is kind of cool. So uh, I'm very excited where we're going. We got a couple of cool character, cool new characters. I mean, oh. anytime you end up with Victoria Grace in an insane asylum, <laughs> There might be some interesting characters that get pulled along in the wake. Right. Uh, so um, they might be uh, some loose cannons that could be interesting to a show that shake things up uh, in its fourth season, which I think are going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Now, we've got a section at the end of the show called Rapid Fire. It's just a couple really quick, fun questions. Who would make for the most interesting subject for a new TV series? Teddy Roosevelt? Ted Bundy? Or Ted, Seth MacFarlane's foul-mouthed talking teddy bear? I'd have to go with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, the guy was a completely uh, ballsy, unique <laughs> president. And to see uh, a type of uh, West Wing show, period West Wing show, about a guy who was fearless, opinionated, uh, gutsy, um, Sometimes a good guy, sometimes a complete asshole. I mean, that's, to me, I'd watch that show. Put it on AMC. I'm there. <laughs> um, you're a big Star Trek fan. So who would make the worst Enterprise ship's captain uh, and why? Khan, Noonien Singh, Q, or a sack full of tribbles? Oh, I got to go Q. I mean, I think you'd have the most fun with Q, but nothing would get done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he all, all he'd do is just use the Enterprise as a, a Petri dish for uh, practical jokes and experiments and just toying with people's minds, emotions, and just screwing around. Nothing would get done. I think a Tribble would be more effective than, uh, than <laughs> you. Um, and if you could take revenge on one company, who would it be? Your bank, your cable internet company, or the airline of your choice? Oh, see, I was about to say when you got to the second one, how whoever chooses anyone other than the cable internet company, um, but airline, that's the, you know what? I gotta go. I seeing that my internet is still out and went out last night at midnight when I was about ready to send my script in and I had to go to uh, FedEx office. I used to be Kinkos, but FedEx office in order to send it. I'm gonna go with cable company. <laughs> I think you would probably be in good company with that answer. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring screenwriters or TV writers, or is there anything else you'd like to share? The one advice I would have is write. Make sure you keep writing. Um, and that I, that might sound like silly advice, but I've met so many people who say, oh, I want to be a writer, and they never have a script, or they're still working on the same script that they've been working on for five, ten years. That's not a writer. Uh, a writer is someone who gets to the end of a script, finishes it, sees what they've learned from it, is willing to put it in a drawer and say, well, uh, that didn't come out as I thought, but I learned something from the process and move on to the next idea. You have to generate ideas, write them down, finish them, rewrite them, and then move on to the next idea. If you're still working on the same script for four, five, six, ten years, and you have no other completed script, you're not a writer, um, you have an idea, you really need to keep writing. 
And you also have to be willing to admit that didn't work the way I thought it was going to, but that's okay. Because in the writer's room, you have to be willing to put your heart and soul into an idea and accept that what may happen is the showrunner or the network might come in and say, nope, I understand that that's an idea, but it's not the one we're going to go with. And you have to be willing to throw it out, say, okay, and move on to the next idea and come up with another one. And if you're unable to do that, you're never going to succeed. So keep writing, finish, and move on to the next idea. Great advice. Thanks for coming on the show, Ted. I know you've got a table read for your next episode coming up, and you're shooting next week. So, uh, But I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Uh, I hope it was worthwhile. It was certainly fun and worthwhile for me. So yeah. thank you very much. Absolutely. And you can follow Ted on Twitter. And it's at Carter Hole, K-A-R-T-E-R-H-O-L. Uh, where did that come from, just out of curiosity? Uh, it is the Thangarian spelling of Hawkman. On Earth, he's Carter Hall, C-A-R-T-E-R-H-A-L-L. On Thangar, he's Carter Hall. But um, I will tell you, it is intentionally misspelled by one letter, um, and that's to remind me that things are not always perfect. Uh, so any geek out there that wonders, like, wait a second, that's not spelled correctly, I won't tell you how it's not spelled correctly, the, the geeks will know. But uh, it is done to remind me that everything can't be perfect. I, I think you're, uh, uh, and nowadays it's super popular to be a nerd, but your uber nerd card, I think it was just uh, stamped uh, right there. That's, that's, that's one of the most interesting <laughs> stories about a Twitter name I've ever heard. Um, excellent, excellent. Um, and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or just send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. And thanks for listening.